Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. If you have your Bible, you can open it to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you uh, need a Bible to follow along with us, just grab the attention of one of the ushers as they're coming up and down the aisles. Um, You heard a couple of things there. Please keep the ladies in prayer as they head to their retreat this weekend. Please pray for them that the Lord would move upon their hearts. Uh, Also pray for that Sunday school opening. You were all clapping when when she said 9 a.m. only. So make make a note of that in your mind. If you bring kids to 11 and uh, they're expecting and you're expecting, it isn't going to work out so good. We'll see how it goes at 9. And if we need to and if we can, we'll do 11. So uh, um, we'll we'll move with the need in in that. So keep that together. And please, uh, we we had our prayer meeting tonight. We pray every Wednesday before the service at at 6. And that's been growing and growing, but, but it's not enough. Please, like come to that. It's, it's so necessary. While we were praying tonight, I actually had a vision of an engine in the heavens and it was being fueled by our prayer. And, uh, and you know, if you've ever had like a car and it's not quite getting enough fuel, it doesn't quite run as well as it could or should or it stutters. And the more of us that pray, the, the more God is moving. And uh, I sense it in my heart and my spirit. I see it in our midst, in our church. I, I feel it around me in society and the hearts of other people. Please be a part of that. If you're not going out to a home for prayer initiative, uh, check the website and go. Our house is tomorrow night at 7. Uh, we'll take I don't care how many people come. You know, if you want to come, we're going to pray from 7 to 8. If nobody comes, we're going to pray from 7 to 8, you know. So, uh, but look on the website, find a time. If you still want to host, you still can. Uh, but it's so necessary now more than ever that we be people that pray. So uh, join with us in that as we seek God to heal our land, to revive our hearts, to pour out a spirit on his church, to help us to lead and not follow during these times of great change. So uh, be aware of all those things. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter, uh, we're going to pick up in chapter 2 verse 12 um, tonight, but I want to start by reading you a a small passage from the gospel of Mark in chapter 4 verse 26 through 29. It's something that Jesus said to kind of set the stage for what's going on in the days of Samuel. So uh, why don't we do this? I'm going to um, pray for our study right now, and then I'm going to read that passage, and we'll get into uh, Samuel. And so, Father, we just again come to you, and, and Lord, we know it's never, that we can never pray too much. And so we just pray now, Lord, as we turn to your word, we ask that the light of heaven and the lamp that is Jesus would shine upon it, and that uh, you would give us your uh, voice. We pray that you'd give us your wisdom, that you'd give us your insight, Lord, through the passage that's here, your your word is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and it's timeless. And Lord, the passage we're going to study tonight, it could have been written today. And so uh, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to find our place in what's going on right now in the world, and that you'd give us wisdom through your word as we search it tonight. I pray that you'd give us uh, laser focus upon what you want to say to us, Lord. Shake away any drowsiness, any other cares and thoughts, any distractions, fears, anxieties. Lord, we lay it all before you right now. We pray and be under the blood uh, and filled with the power of your spirit, Lord, that we would be uh, fully attentive to you tonight. And so we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It says, Jesus said this. It's Mark chapter 4, verse 26. Uh, Jesus said, so is the kingdom of God, as if a man should cast seed into the ground and should sleep and rise night and day, And the seed should spring and grow up, he knoweth not how. For the earth brings forth fruit by herself, first the blade, then the ear, and then after that, the full corn in the ear. But 
When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest is come. As the end, it's the only gospel where Jesus spoke those words. Uh, and he says that the kingdom of God is like something unseen. You can't see it. It's in the ground. There's something happening in a place where you can't see. It's invisible to the naked eye. There's something happening, but you're not aware of it. You're hoping it's there, but you can't see it. It's unseen, but then it develops into something that becomes seen. It runs its course all the way to completion, and then it's done away with. Once it bears its full fruit, then it is put under. And Jesus said, this is the way that the kingdom of God works. And he's speaking in the context of our experience being in his kingdom here on this earth. It works much like seasons. It works much like the harvesting of a crop. There's a seed, there's growth, there's produce, and then it's plowed under. And so with that in mind, as we look at these early chapters here in 1 Samuel, what we're seeing is the end of a sowing cycle, the end of a season cycle where God had planted something, God had grown something, God had done something, but it is now turned over. The fruit is passed, the system is still there, the form, the plant is still there, but it's no longer producing. Things have died, things have, have waxed old, things are corrupt, the system is, is no longer producing fruit, people are languishing, and so the time has come that God is going to plow the old thing under, and God is going to do something brand new new. And so we're in a series of studies, we're calling it transitions because that's what's going on in 1 Samuel. And it represents times of change for God's people on earth. And so it's the death of an old, outdated, corrupt and useless system. And then the birthing of a new living and fruitful system. And so what it is, it is change that is orchestrated by an unchanging God. And that can be a little bit confusing and sometimes difficult to navigate. But God does that. That's what he does. Now, the opening chapters of the book, really, it represents the germinating of the change seed under the surface. And so the things that are going on in the text before us, if you put yourself in those times, you would have no idea that these things are going on. But God is very much working and preparing to do something completely brand new for the good of his people, and for the glory of his name. Now, what we saw in our study last week is that long before Samuel even comes on the scene, who will be the agent of God's change, God was already working. He was working in a man. He was working in a dysfunctional family. He was working in a set of circumstances. He was working in the heart of a woman who was broken over her own barrenness. And God began to work through all of that to bring forth what would ultimately be the change that would come. And so by the time we get to where we are here in the middle of chapter two, the seed of that change has sprouted And the man that God will use is being prepared for what God has for him. And so what we're going to see tonight in our study, and I want you to hang with me because when I say study, I know I lose some people because they're like, oh, we're studying. It's a study. Study is, I don't want to study, you know. No, but but, but I want you to see is that, that we're going to see the flaw of what is falling, and then we're going to see the foundation of what is yet to come. And I'm telling you, it could be written today because we're living in the very things that were going on uh, right then. We're going to see the fall 
of the house of Eli, that is the priest that God was using, and we're going to see the future leadership of Samuel coming right up. Now, for one moment, I want to ask you guys to bear with me, and I want you to grab a pen if you've got it, but don't spend 10 minutes looking for one because you'll miss out. Just listen, okay? But if you have a pen, and if you're taking notes, I want you to do this for a second. It'll help you with clarity tonight because I'm going to bounce around a little bit through the passage that we're going to be in. But here's what I want you to do, is that if you have your Bible open to 1 Samuel chapter 2, I want you to do this. Between verse 11 and verse 12, between those two verses, I want you to just draw a line right across. I'm going to chunk this out for you, all right? So right between verse 11 and 12 of chapter 2, and then I want you to draw another line after verse 17, So go down to chapter 2, verse 17, draw another line. And then I want you to go to verse 21. After verse 21, I want you to draw another line. And then all the way, you're going to go far now, all the way to chapter 3, verse 3. Draw another line after verse 3 of chapter 3. You're saying this sounds more and more like a study. You lying to me? No, no, hang on. And then after chapter 3, verse 10, draw another line, and one more line. After verse 14, draw another line, okay? Now, what I just gave to you is I gave you six sections, and I did that on purpose, okay? Because three of these sections that I gave to you deal with the fall or the undoing of the house of Eli, And three of these sections have to do with the preparation of Samuel. And both of those things are important for us to see and understand tonight in our study. And so as we go through, you could, I did it in my Bible. I wrote E1, S1, E2, S2, E3, you know, just for for my own uh, clarity and everything. Uh, but, But you need to see this. Now, what I want you to understand, one last thing before we get into it, is that there is not competition between these two uh, systems, Eli and Samuel. They, are, they represent really two generations on the same team. One is passing away, and the other one is coming anew. And so they aren't competing things. God is just changing things around. And so we begin in verse 12, and this would be E1, section concerning the fall of Eli, And it concerns uh, his sons, the flaw of the fallen. It begins in verse 12. Notice with me in the text, it says this. It says, now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. That's just a gracious King James way of saying that they were children of the devil. And it says that they knew not the Lord. Now, this is a tragic thing that happens uh, when there are people that are in the service of God but yet they don't know the God that they are representing. It's a tragic thing, but it happens all too often, okay? Jesus said in his day concerning those people, and there was a lot of them in Jesus' day, he called them blind leaders of the blind. And that's a perfect description because you have people representing something that they have no idea what they're representing, talking about something they have no idea what they're talking about because they don't know the Lord, Paul, the apostle, talked about people like that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. And he used this language to describe people like the sons of Eli. He said that they have a form of godliness, a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof from such turn away. 
For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And just as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. They're men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. In other words, there are people that serve God, that call his name, that are employed in his service, that don't know him. They have a form of godliness, but they have no power in their life whatsoever at all, and they are completely reprobate, and that is who we're dealing with here with Eli's sons. Not so much Eli, but he's at fault too. We're going to see in that whole thing. Now, look at what they were doing, verse 13. It says that as the priest's custom with the people was, that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came, and while the flesh was seething or boiling... He came with a flesh hook. I love that. We should call forks flesh hooks, don't you think? Like, that's what it is. It's a fork, but let's just call it a, give me the flesh hook, you know, (laughs) of three teeth in his hand, and he stuck it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot, and all that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came there. And so, you know, part of the way that the priests would get their pay is that they would receive the offerings of the people. And it became a custom that this was what they would do during the feast times is that the priest would eat by just helping himself to the buffet that was served in each family. He would go with a fork. He'd walk into the middle of the picnic blanket. He'd stick his fork in and whatever came out, that was his. And it was kind of like this agreed upon covenant, but they took it a little bit further than that. Verse 15. It says, also, before they burnt the fat, the priest servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have boiled flesh from you, but raw. And if any man said to him, let them not fail to burn the fat first, that was the law, and then let them take as much as thy soul desires. Then he would answer him, no, but if you will not give it to me now, or you will give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Wherefore, the sin of the young men, that is Eli's sons, was very great before the Lord, and here's why, because men abhorred or hated the offering of the Lord. In other words, they came to a point because of the corruption of these greedy men, it came to the point where people hated something that was supposed to be a blessing and a joy, okay? So you got to ask the question, how does it happen that people end up in the ministry that don't even know God? <laughs> because somewhere in there, there you got to wonder, like, what's the step-by-step to that? Because, you know, it's just a little bit confusing. Why would you even want to be in that position if you don't know God? And, and I, now these guys are there. How does it happen? Here's how it happens, okay? There are three pillars And I almost called this study, I almost called it the fruitful stool, but I didn't like the way that sounded. So I didn't call it that. Uh, It it is called, by the way, uh, a new world ordered, and you'll understand why uh, later on. But, But really, there are three legs that hold up a stool, right? It can't stand on one or two. It needs at least three. And so there, there's a three-legged stool, three pillars that will produce, first of all, a fruitful walk. And second of all, a valid work. If something is really going to be of God, it needs to have three things. And number one is this. It has to have, first of all, a foundation or the form. 
Remember, Paul said the form of godliness. That's a valid thing, okay? You need to know who God is. So you need to know his word. You need to know his truth. You need to know the Bible. You need to know his ways, the things that have been revealed. That's the form. And that's important. That's an essential part. But it's not the only part. The stool can't stand only on one leg. The second thing that you've got to have in order for a work to be valid is that you've got to have relationship. If you like to alliterate, you could say friendship, form and friendship. You have to have a relationship with God. You have to know him. There has to be more than just knowledge in the head. There has to be a relating to him in the heart and in the life. It has to be real. There has to be the relationship. And then thirdly, you need to have fire. All right. In other words, God has to have called you. There has to be an unction, something driving you from within, leading you in the service that God has called you to, or else your service will be without effect. It will be fruitless and powerless. Now, here's what happens, okay, is that form, the foundation, the education, learning the Bible, that can be transferred from person to person and from generation to generation. Really, that's what's happening right now. I'm teaching you God's ways. I'm teaching you God's word. I'm imparting to you the foundation of who God is and his ways. That's what happens when you read the Bible. It's what happens when you listen to the radio. It's what happens when you sit in church. The foundation is being laid, okay? But the other two parts, the relationship and the anointing of God, those things cannot be transferred. They're universally available, meaning anyone can have them, but they're based on covenant and they're initiated by God. So in other words, you can pass on a form, but that form can be void of relationship or Holy Spirit power. And that's what happens all too often from generation to generation. Now, God called Aaron and ultimately the, the line of descendants that led to Eli. He gave them the calling. There was a relationship. There was an anointing. But over time, the form survived, but the relationship died. The system was established, but God was now void of the system. He was no longer in it, and that's how it happens over time. And so here's what happens to people is that we can inspect the foundation of a system or a church or a move of God. And we could say the fundamentals are all there. And we can miss the fact that maybe the relationship isn't, the power of God is absent because we think that the fundamentals mean that all those other things are in place. And people get comfortable with form. You can fake fire and you can fake relationship. And so people get comfortable with form and they never check and it happens, okay? Now here's the three sins of Eli's house. The first one we read in the passage, and that is this, greed. Greed was the first sin of Eli's house. They were exploiting the offering and they were making giving a grief. They were making something that was supposed to be a joy and a privilege something that became a grief to the people. They were stealing the substance of it for themselves. And so what would happen is that people would come to offer to God and rather than feel like they were pleasing God and contributing or giving an offering of themselves to him, the feeling was that I'm doing this to make them fat. I'm enriching the servants of God 
in this whole thing, and, and, and it became a big sin to them, and it was a grief of heart to the Lord. It was a sin against God because people no longer wanted to give because of the corruption and the greed uh, that was in them. The second sin of the house of Eli we see in verse 22. You should have a line right before verse 22, and verse 22 to verse 25 is E2. Okay, this is the second sin of the sons of Eli. And notice with me what it says. It says this. It says, now Eli was very old and he heard all that his sons did unto all Israel. So Eli knew about the corruption of his kids and how they laid with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he said unto them, why do ye such things? Now, he shouldn't have said, why do ye such things? He should have said, you're fired. <laughs> he should have said, pack sand, get your stuff and get out. You don't belong here anymore. But he didn't say that. He said, why are you doing this? You guys should really search your hearts about this. Check yourself, you know. He says, for I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. In other words, it's gotten out. People know what you're doing. Nay, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people to transgress. In other words, you are causing sin to exist in, of course, the women that you're doing this with, but you are also setting an example that is gaining traction and people are beginning to do as you guys are doing. And then he reasons with them thus, verse 25. He says, if one man sins against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will entreat for him? Notwithstanding, listen, they hearkened not. They didn't listen unto the voice of their father because the Lord would slay them. Hey, you kids that aren't listening to your parents, you might want to think about what might be going on in a place that you can't see when you harden your heart against the instruction that they're trying to give you in grace and in love. It says that the child and the child Samuel grew on and was in favor both with God and with men. Okay, the second sin of the house of Eli was the sin of lust. All right, and this is just wrong on every level. It's one of the most destructive and far reaching sins that you can commit as a human being not much less as a pastor or a minister or someone who names the name of Christ. The destruction that this causes, this sin, to move the gift of sex that God created to be held in marriage and to move it outside of the context of marriage causes ripple effects that are far beyond what you can even imagine. And it just keeps going and going and going, the destruction that it is, okay? Sex is a trust and a gift that's reserved for biblical monogamous marriage. And you cannot take it outside of that context without irreversible and unavoidable consequences. It doesn't just ruin churches, which it'll wreak havoc in a church, but it ruins everything. It is an extremely destructive thing, and it was running rampant in the system that God was about to bury under the soil. The third sin of Eli's house is given to us in chapter 3, verses 11 through 14. You should have another uh, couple of lines surrounding that section. You can call that E3. It's the third uh, sin of Eli's household, and this one's on Eli. The, other, the others were on his sons, but this one's on him. If you'd look with me there, uh, chapter 3, verse 11, it says that the Lord said to Samuel, and we'll, we'll catch the context of all this in a moment, 
He said, behold, I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that hears it will tingle. In that day, I will perform against Eli all things that I have spoken concerning his house. And when I begin, I will also make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity, which he knows because his sons made themselves vile. Watch this. And he restrained them not. And therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice or offering forever. The third sin of Eli's house was the sin of looking the other way. The sin of being complicit in someone else's debauchery by not doing what you can to put a stop to it. Now Eli alone had the power to punish and purge, but he didn't do it. And, and we don't know why, but we can imagine because it would have been very uncomfortable for him to do so. First of all, the conflict that it would have created within his own family. Second of all, the comfort that it would have cost him to have removed his sons. It would have meant that he had to work a whole lot harder because they were carrying the load at this stage of his life. It would have affected the provisions that he himself was also enjoying. There would have been so many inconveniences for Eli to deal with the sin that was going on right in front of him. And so he decided rather than to do something about it, he would look the other way and just let things play out their course. And God took notice of it. And he was not pleased with Eli. And he said, uh, you're going to be done because of this. It is not an easy thing to sit in the big chair of leadership. And if you've ever been in it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Do you know what it means to be promoted to incompetence? There's a, there's a guy in the church who, I, hope he, I didn't ask him if I could share this, but I, I know he'd say yes. But he was an assistant uh, pilot. He was the co-pilot. Uh, and he worked for an airline, and he was very good at it. He loved the position. He did very well in it. And he was promoted. He got promoted from co-pilot to pilot, and he took the promotion. They offered it, and he took it. He went to the first day, and he realized in himself, wisely, he realized, I just got promoted to incompetence. I'm not a captain. I'm a co-pilot. And he realized, and that can happen. It's not easy to sit in the big chair because when you are the leader, you are responsible to deal with the things that come up before you. And it's a responsibility and a trust and a stewardship, and it's not something that is always peaceful. And Eli chose rather than to deal with the issue that was before him, he chose to ignore it. But the truth is, it's better to be right by God than to be praised or uh, accepted by man. Now, because of all of this, the three sins of Eli, I want you to listen to what God has to say. Turn back to chapter 2, verse 27, and listen to what God says concerning Eli. It says that there came a man of God unto Eli. And said unto him, thus says the Lord, did I plainly appear unto the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer on my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I give unto the house of your father all the offerings made by fire to the children of Israel? I've given you an incredible privilege, you and your descendants. Wherefore, or why then do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and you honor your sons above me to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Wherefore, the Lord God of Israel says, 
I said indeed that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now, the Lord says, be it far from me, for them that honor me, I will honor, and them that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. And I want you to think about, meditate on that verse, maybe in your own, you know, later. You know, sometimes people, they, they have this, uh, this, this, this false sense of security. You know, they'll, they'll tattoo on their back this uh, O-S-A-S uh, thing, in quote, you know, once saved, always saved, and, you know, God loves me, and I can do whatever I want. It's never, it doesn't matter. There's no consequence. I want you to think about what God says here. He says, I promised that I would be with your house in the house of your fathers forever. But now, God says, but now, but now, he says, I will honor those that honor me and I will despise or lightly esteem those that despise me. It is important, do you know this church, that we maintain the fear of God. The promises of God are not gonna be upended. God's not gonna take away his love or his lampstand in a moment. And God's gonna keep his promise but we must never lose a sense of the fear of God that we have been given an amazing trust and that we have a walk that we're called into. He says, behold, the days come that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house and there shall not be an old man in your house. And you shall see an enemy in my habitation and all the wealth which God will give Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. And the man of yours whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be to consume your eyes and grieve your heart, and all the increase of your house shall die in the flower of their age. In other words, no one's going to prosper in your descendancy forever. And this shall be a sign unto you that shall come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phinehas. So this prophet who's speaking to Eli says, this is how you can know that what I'm saying to you is from God. He says that in one day they both shall die. And I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left in your house shall come and crouch to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread, and shall say, Put me, I pray thee, into one of the priest's offices, that I may eat a piece of bread. You're going to go from where you are right now to a place of simply begging that you might be in a place where you might have what you now have again because of your iniquity. And then in, if you look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, it just gives you a summary, a clear, concise summary of what this system had become, the system of Eli. It says that the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and it says this, and it says, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. And when it says the word of the Lord, it's not talking about Bibles. There were Bibles everywhere. I mean, we're talking about the tabernacle. There was shelves of Bibles, okay? It's not talking about the Bible. It's talking about the voice of the Lord. It's talking about the prophetic unction, the word that God would speak, the speech of God, if you would. It says that the word was precious, meaning it was rare, you wouldn't hear someone get up and be able to say, thus saith God, and say, yes, that was the Lord. Thank you for, for feeding my soul. And it says that it came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place. Eli represents the system, and the system was laid down. It should have been standing up. It should have been holding the fire, but it was laid down. 
And it says that his eyes began to wax dim, that he could not see. There was no longer any vision in that system. They couldn't see why they existed anymore in the past. They couldn't see what they existed for in the future looking forward. They had become blind in their own leadership. They were the blind leading the blind. And then it says, and air, or just before. I love this about God, don't you? Just before. Sometimes I wish he wasn't the God of just before, <laughs> right? Just before the bill is due, just before my kid, you know, kills himself recklessly, you know, just before, then God intervened, but, but he is the God of just before. It says, and just before the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord, where the ark was, or where the ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep, and it says, that's when the Lord called Samuel, and he said, here I am. And so just before there was no hope left that God had any place in the nation to do any work in anyone, God's going to put the system down, and God is going to start something completely brand new, okay? Now, turn back to chapter 2, verse 18, and let's look at what God is going to raise up to replace what he is taking down. The Lord says that he's the one that raises up and he's the one that tears down. So what is God going to raise up in place of what he's tearing? And, and, and please think about it in the context of your own life right now because God is in the midst of tearing something down right in front of our eyes. But God doesn't tear anything down without then raising something up in its place. So what did God raise up in the place of what he tore down? First of all, we're going to see that Samuel will develop all three legs of this fruitful stool. He's going to have a foundation. He's going to have a relationship with God. And he's going to have an anointing from God. He's going to have the full thing and God's going to give us the insight into where all those things come from. Notice what it says in chapter 2, verse 18. This is S1, if you want to put it in the margin right there, concerning Samuel. It says that Samuel ministered before the Lord, being a child, girded with a linen ephod. Okay, if you, if you remember back over in chapter 3, verse 1, it says that the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli. Okay, so catch this, because this is important, all right? Is that God was laying a foundation in Samuel's life and he was using the flawed system of Eli's ministry in order to lay the foundation in Samuel's life. And that's an important thing to understand, that the foundation came from a flawed system, that God is going to nurse Samuel and cut his teeth in something that he's about to undo. And you've got to ask yourself the question, why would God want him there if God's about to tear the thing down because the thing is so corrupted? And the answer is this, is because God will use a flawed system to, to raise up faithful people. He knows how to do it and he will do it. And Samuel's going to get two things that are priceless in e Eli's house. Number one is he's going to learn the word because he's around it. He's going to learn the Bible. He's going to learn the form because the form is still there. And God needs him to have the form. The form is important. The foundation is important. The other thing that he's going to receive there is an example. Now, it's a bad example. It's a really bad example. But that doesn't bother God all that much. And here's why. 
Because when you have the foundation of God's truth, and then you get to see an example that's contrary to God's truth, and you get to see what happens when someone lives contrary to God's truth, it solidifies the foundation of the word of truth that God has placed in your life. And so God will use a bad example, sometimes even more than he'll use a good example, because it produces the fruit of immunity against doing the bad thing. And it's an amazing thing how it happens. I think one of, one of, the, one of the most damaging things a Christian can do, that you will waste more time in your Christian life doing, is if you feel like you have to test the three legs of every ministry before you receive something from it. It's a big mistake that a lot of Christians make, okay? Because if you take the time to test the water in every cup before you take a sip, by the time the results come back, the water will be dried up and you'll find yourself completely dehydrated. You don't need to prove the legs of those you learn from, you just need to make sure that yours are legit and God will then be able to lead you. See, if you have the word of God and a heart for God that you want to follow him sincerely, then you can be in a flawed system or a church that isn't perfect or hearing a message that isn't right on and God's going to still work through that. But if you cut yourself off from all of it because you say, well, I'm afraid, I don't want to be deceived in this whole thing, then you'll get nothing from anyone because by the time you see if they're actually true, they're gone or you're too old or what they said doesn't matter in your life anymore. Sometimes Christians come to me and they say, what do you think about this book? What do you think about this preacher? What do you think about this speaker? What do you think about this minister? And they'll ask me that question. You know what I've learned to say? Trust your immune system. <laughs> really? Like, do you have a heart for God? Yeah. Do you know and love his word first? Yeah. Do you want the truth and you don't want to be deceived? Yeah. Okay, then trust your immune system. Because even if you get deceived for a season in something that you listen to or believe or follow after, eventually, if it's wrong, you're going to taste the fruit of what's wrong, and you're going to correct course from it, and then you're really going to understand the truth behind X, Y, and Z. What happens to people that are never exposed to germs? They get real sickly, don't they? See, germs strengthen your immune system. All this to say, God will use a flawed system, and he does it with Samuel. He gets his foundation, he gets his form in the house of Eli. It says in verse 19, moreover, his mother made a little coat and brought it to him year to year when she came with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Now, what is this? A coat is a covering. There is nothing more priceless, moms, that you can do for your kids than to bring them a covering and to change the covering as they grow year by year. What's a covering? A covering is prayer. That's right. Pray for your kids, moms and dads. Pray for your kids. Listen, they grow out of their coats as they grow. They grow out of what you need to be praying for. Keep continually praying for them. It's the most priceless thing that you can do. And it says that Eli blessed Elkanah and his wife, and he said, the Lord give you seed of this woman for the loan which is lent to the Lord. And they went unto their own home, and the Lord visited Hannah, the one who had been barren, so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the, Lord, and the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Listen, you can never outgive God. You know that? 
I mean, she, she begged for this child. She had it. She gave it to God. And now God, she, she, she becomes the mother of six. This is why God was so angry at Eli's sons. Because they had so stolen from the people that they had lost in it the relationship aspect of giving to God. Giving is such a privilege because it's reciprocal. We give to God and he gives to us. There's a, a sharing, a receiving. There's a flowing of resources like a marriage, you know. And, and when, when, when that's exploited and when people begin to hate that because it's corrupted, it bothers God because it's cutting off an arm of relationship that he wants to have with his people. Hannah had it because she gave to the Lord. Now, uh, let's go on. He had the foundation. God used the flawed system. But now let's look at the relationship. Turn back to chapter 3, verse 4. In chapter 3, verse 4, we see the relationship that God developed with Samuel. Remember, the lamp was almost out. Samuel's laying in his place. He's just a child. And it says that the Lord spoke to him while he was laid down to sleep. In verse 4, it says, the Lord called Samuel and he answered. Samuel said, here am I. And in chapter 3, verse 5, it says that he ran to Eli and he said unto him, here I am for you called me. And Eli said, I called not, lie down again. And he went and laid down. Now, this is an amazing thing because now... Samuel's foundation is going to unfold into a friendship. He, he has the fundamentals down, but he doesn't yet know God personally. He doesn't know his voice. He doesn't know how to be led by God. And so God is speaking to him now, and God is going to teach him how to hear his voice. And God's going to speak to Samuel three times, okay? And it's going to follow this progression. The first time, he's clueless. He has no idea what's happening. The second time, he's confused. And then the third time, he's cultivated. God's going to teach him. God's going to lead him on. The first time, he's completely clueless. Now, there is a mindset that exists among Christians wherein we think that God cannot speak to us outside of the system that we're accustomed to. If God's going to speak to me, Okay, he's going to do it through my pastor or through my mentor or through the radio program that I like or the books that I've, I've chosen to read, okay? But God can't speak outside of those things. Oh, yes, he can. <laughs> oh, yes, he can. Listen, could God speak through a loud and unfitting thought? Why did that thought just pop into my head right then in that context? I don't ever think about those things. How does that happen? Could God speak to me through an idea that I have just out of the blue somewhere? Could that be God? Could God speak to me through a mental picture, just something I see in my mind, a vision? Could that be from God or is that just the random spinning of imaginations that happens throughout the day? Could God speak to me through a desire that I have or maybe a dream? How, how does God speak? How doesn't God speak? But sometimes we get so accustomed, well, God only speaks when I'm reading my Bible. If it's not during my devotion time, then it can't be God. God only speaks to me when I'm in church. God only speaks when I'm talking to this person who prays with me. No, it doesn't work like that. God wants to speak to you all the time. He speaks to the heart. And something hit Samuel deeply, and it didn't come in a way that he was used to, so he was clueless and confused, and he goes to Eli, and he says, hey, did you call? Because I felt something, I heard something, but... It's not what I'm used to, and what, what's going, and Eli goes, what are you talking about? Man, I'm dead spiritually. Go back to sleep, you know. I don't hear from God anymore, you know. He sends him back. Well, it happens a second time in verse 6. 
In verse 6, it says that the Lord called yet again Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you did call me. And he answered, I called not my son, lie down again. He's confused, and we're told why he's confused in verse 7. It says, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. See, he didn't have relationship. He had form, but he didn't have friendship. That was something that would be cultivated a little bit later on. I want to tell you something that might set you free here tonight. It might be something that you're struggling with. If you're new in the faith, or you haven't been walking with God as long as maybe someone else, do not be discouraged nor dismayed when someone says to you, hey, the Lord spoke to me and he told me this. And you go, the Lord did what? <laughs> what do you mean the Lord spoke to you? And then you start to think, well, I'm not even saved. God doesn't speak to me. What is that? I mean, what does that sound like? Listen, understand this, is that it is a process of experience and learning what it is that God says and how God says things, okay? Foundation is what interprets relationship. So as you learn God's word and God's ways and you are experienced in walking with him and getting accustomed to him, that's when friendship can unfold to a greater level and his voice can become clearer in your heart as he speaks to you, okay? You will not recognize God's voice by a sound. You will recognize his voice by his son. Do you understand that? That as you get to know Jesus... As you get to know God through his word, when he speaks to you, you'll have enough of a foundation in his ways and his truth that you'll begin to recognize his voice. He's mysterious, but he's consistent. He's invisible, but he's real. And he speaks and he teaches us to speak. And learning to hear God is not an all at once experience, okay? It doesn't come when you recognize a sound comes when you recognize the son. Now listen, the third time he hears God's voice, now he's being cultivated. Notice verse eight. It says that the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli, and he said, here am I, for you did call me. I'm not crazy. I heard you. And Eli perceived that the Lord had called the child. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you will say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood and called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And then Samuel answered, speak, for your servant hears. Now, he receives instruction. And I want you to understand, this was a very critical moment for Samuel. Because he could have very easily, at this moment, slipped into form and avoided friendship. He could have been like, oh, this is crazy. I'm just hearing things. I'm going to roll over, and I'm going to go to sleep not going to say, speak, Lord. That's silly. I heard something. But he does it. He takes it back to God in prayer. Lord, I think you might be speaking to me. And so I want you to know that my attention is yours. My ear is open and I want what you have for me. And God says, ah, that is, that is what I was waiting for. Okay. And, and, and he's moving into relationship with God. Okay. I wonder what it was like for Samuel. Think, put yourself in, in Samuel's bed for just a moment. And God begins to speak to him. 
And God begins to unfold and reveal to him these things. It says in verse 11 that the Lord said to Samuel, and we read this already, but he said, I'll do a thing that is going to cause ears to tingle. I'm going to perform against Eli's house all the things that I've said. I'm going to judge him forever because he knows of the sin and he didn't restrain his sons. You know, God, God's given Eli all this stuff. I'm sorry, Samuel, all this stuff. And he's just listening to it. He's listening to it. He's listening to it. He's going, he's going. And I wonder, what was that like? Now, here's what we know. We know that only Moses, of all the people in the Bible, heard God voice audibly face to face because it says that. Moses says that he was the only one that God spoke to like a man speaks to his friend. Okay, so I do not believe that Samuel was sitting there hearing the audible voice that all of us wish we would hear from God. Okay, he, so, so you say, well, what was it then? How did God speak to him? How did all of this come out? Here's what I believe happened. Okay, I could be wrong. I get to heaven and God could say that's not how it happened. But this is just based on, based on my walk with God and my understanding of the word. Here's what I think happened when, Sa- when Samuel was laying on his bed that night. Is that he was able by the spirit of God to put together, first of all, facts. Okay, because there's nothing new here. He put together the facts. He knew the corruption of Eli's house. He knew Eli had already been rebuked by a man of God. He knew that things were not in the place that they were supposed to be. So Samuel had facts. He had, second of all, observations. He had seen things. He knew Eli's sons. He knew Eli. He knew the culture of what it was like, what worship was like. He heard the murmurings of the people that hated offering to God. He could observe all of that. So he put facts and observation, and then third... He put together an unction. There was something from the spirit of God deep within him that was connecting all of these things, leading him to the conclusion that what God was about to do was to unseat Eli's seed. And then that unction was mixed with, here's number four, faith. There was an element of faith in it. Because anytime anything happens that connects heaven with earth, there is some element of faith that's involved in it, meaning that he had to believe that what he was hearing was from God. I used to work down in uh, lower Westchester, and um, sometimes I would go right from work to teach Bible studies in people's homes that lived down there. I lived up in Putnam County at the time, so I wouldn't go home, shower, and then go back and teach. I would just say, can I come by your house after work, shower, and then have the Bible study? And people, you know, like, yeah, of course, sure, you can use my shower. It's a little awkward, but it worked, you know, in the whole thing. And, and just to kind of break the ice, you know, what I would do is, is I would go and, and they would have, remember those, remember those foofs, those uh, yellow, the, the, the spongy things that absorb a lot of soap and they're real like scratchy? They, those were big and everybody had those things in their shower, you know? So to break the ice, I would say, thanks for the shower. I was like, and then I would just say, that foof is amazing. <laughs> and, and then and they would kind of look at me for a minute and I would just say, no, no, I'm, I'm joking. I didn't really, but they probably threw it out anyway, you know, just because just how do you, you know, but you say, why are you telling us that story? To wake you up. No, no. I'm telling you that story because sometimes when you want to hear God's voice, you have to use the foof, okay? You have to take facts, observation, okay? Uh, what's the F-O-U, unction and faith. And you put the foof together, all right? And you need to use the foof sometimes uh, as you're learning to hear God's voice. But, 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 but can you imagine what it was like for Samuel to be laying there and hearing God 
and God's speaking to him, and he's, all these things are connecting, and there's an unction, and God is making himself known, and oh, it's by faith, and I can hear you, and, 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 and you're using my life experiences, and the things that I've learned in your word, and the things going on around me, you're putting it all together, you're unctioning me from the inside, you're, you're moving in me, there's something happening, it's supernatural, and it was going on in Samuel's heart while he laid there. It was relationship. And then that turned into fire. Notice the closeout of the event, chapter uh, 3, verse 15. Jose, you killed me tonight with that extra song, the time. But it says, and Samuel laid until the morning. I love the extra song. Don't get me wrong. And they opened, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel feared to show Eli the vision. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he answered, here am I. And he said, what is the thing that the Lord has said unto you? I pray, don't hide it from me. God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all things that he said unto you. And Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems him good. This is another critical moment in Samuel's calling. is because he was afraid to say something that might be confrontational. And if God speaks to you, that's a stewardship. There's a responsibility that's connected to it. And he had to say some hard things to Eli, even though Eli himself wasn't even courageous enough to say hard things to his kids. But he did it, and it completed the cycle, okay? It was God's word revealed to Samuel, and then Samuel heard it, and then Samuel did according to what God told him. There was obedience in it. And watch the result of Samuel's obedience. Verse 19, it says that Samuel grew. Do you see that? I want you to underline it if you still have your pen out. Samuel grew meaning that he, he took the things that God was doing in his life at this season and he made them a part of his discipline and his relationship and his lifestyle and it compounded. God's voice became clearer. His will became clearer. He understood things clearer. He grew and the Lord was with him. And watch this. This is amazing. It says, and the Lord did let none of his words fall to the ground. That's awesome. Here's why. Because it means maybe Samuel didn't get it perfectly right every time. Maybe there were times that he felt the unction, like, God, you're saying this, and, and maybe it wasn't perfect, but God backed him up anyways and held him up. God will never rebuke you for having too much faith. And that's what he, he backs up Samuel in here. And it says that all Israel from Dan, that's the northmost point, even to Beersheba, that's the southmost point, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Listen, this is number three. It's the fire. Is that God laid a foundation, he cultivated a relationship, and then he filled him with fire. There was an anointing in Samuel's life that made him able to carry the authority of God and bear the lamp of God's testimony into a changing time, even though things are about to get real chaotic in Israel when we get into chapter four next week. But notice where it happened. The last verse, chapter three, verse 21. Do you see where it happened? It says it happened in Shiloh. I said it a few weeks ago, I'll say it again, is that Shiloh is another name in the Bible for Jesus. 
Because in Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob was blessing his sons, he said that the scepter of leadership will not depart from the tribe of Judah until Shiloh comes. Speaking of Jesus, the coming Messiah, the one who would save. Is that the spirit of God was restored into a nation in, you could say, in Jesus. That that's where these things happen. Listen, foundation, relationship, anointing happens in Jesus. It's in his person and in his person alone. You say, well, what does all of this have to do with where we are at in our nation today? Here's what it is. There was a system in Samuel's day that had served its cause but had become corrupted. And it was too entrenched for man to reform it. It was going to be a work of God that was going to uproot it and replace it with something else. We had a conversation earlier this week. We were talking about the upcoming elections, and everybody was kind of voicing their thoughts about if this happens, then this. If this happens, then this. And, and I had this feeling inside that, you know, like, probably doesn't matter. Probably doesn't matter. It's, it, you know, the, the outcome of the election could be really perfect, but, but it almost seems at this point that it's, it's like getting your meds right after you've been shot, <laughs> you know, like, ah, oh! and then it's like, oh, I finally got it. It's, it doesn't, it's too late. You're going to bleed out, <laughs> you know, and, and, it, and it almost seems like that's where we're at as a system. And you say, well, what, what do you mean? What do you mean we're, that's where we're at as a system? We are a, a nation that's supposed to be one nation under God, but we have been completely given to greed. And when God looks at our nation, what does he see? I mean, look at what's going, man, I'm so out of time. It's ridiculous. I'm almost tempted to like just another message next week. All right. (laughs) Yeah, but I'm going to get in trouble. (laughs) Okay. I'll be quick. Listen, there's a reason why our sons don't want to work. You know, oh, my kids are so lazy. They just don't want to work. They just want to play video games. They don't want to do anything. They won't get a job. They're 37, still living in Vietnam. There's a reason for that, okay? There's a reason. Here's the reason. The Bible says that we're to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, okay? Which means what comes out of my life is to be incorporated into my relationship with God And there's to be a giving and receiving of myself and of him to myself through what I do and what I produce within my life. Jesus talked about the principles of sowing and reaping. He said, if you sow, you will reap. That's the benefit of what we get in this life. But what has happened in our country is that the greed that exists on higher levels has created a system where the value of what I have to pour out as a man Most of the time, it's ingrained in me that that wealth is going to make someone else wealthy. I'm going to work for a wage. I'm going to be an indentured servant in a job or in a place that I maybe wasn't made for that will get me barely by, but there's no life in it, and it makes me despise the offering of the Lord. See, I'm to offer my life to him, but for what? So that I can barely make it? So that I can be miserable every day of my life? That's not the system that God wants. That's not God's system. 
He made us to be productive. He made us to be entrepreneurial. He made us to produce. He made us to love what we do. But there's a system of greed that has choked that out of our young men. Not just greed, but lust. We're a society that's completely given over to lust. It's crazy. We're going to break up the nuclear family. Just have sex with whoever you want, and there's no consequence, and there's no commitment. You don't need tenderness. You've got tenderness. You can just hook up. It's hookup culture. Let's just, we, no, no. Listen, it's, it's crazy. It's absurd. We live in a culture that has chosen to look the other way. Well, we can't enforce the laws, so we'll remove them. We can't enforce laws against drugs, so we'll legalize drugs. We'll just take the law away. We can't enforce the law against pedophilia, so we'll just lower the age of consent. No longer do you have to be 18. Now you can be 14. You've read that, I hope. I hope you see what's going on out there right now. It's crazy. We can't enforce laws of pedophilia. We can't, we can't filter child porn off the internet. But if you post something that goes against the narrative of COVID-19, it can be removed in five seconds or less by those people that are just monitoring the internet constantly for it. But you can't, no, no, we're just going to legalize it because we can't fix it. You, you are all complaining that the laws aren't being enforced. So we'll do, let's just remove the police. We'll just get rid of it. We don't need police. Then we don't have to worry about that. We don't need to uphold the Constitution. We'll just grant powers to supersede the Constitution. Listen, here's the truth of the matter. Is that when a system is completely given over to greed, lust, and looking the other way, and lawlessness, God will be done with that system. But God will raise something up in his place. And, and the question is, where are the Samuels? Because we are not victims of what's coming on the earth. Do you understand that? We aren't victims of it. We are to be what leads, what replaces what's broken when what comes upon the earth. Where are the Samuels? Where are the people that have the foundation of God's word? and the relationship with him and our being led, and the unction and the anointing to be still standing when everything else falls. Because Jesus still said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, didn't he? Where did it happen? It happened at Jesus. Will you come back to Jesus? For those that have a form but deny the power, will you come back to Jesus? For those that maybe once there was an unction, but it was too uncomfortable because it was outside of what your present comfort level was, will you come to Jesus and step out and say, God, speak, your servant is hearing? For those that maybe were afraid to speak out or afraid to step out or afraid to do something because it was uncomfortable or confrontational, would you do, would you speak, would you be what God called you to be, what God called us to be? Would you walk in his power and in his anointing? And would we walk in faith 
and not in fear because things are changing. Oh, Father, we just come to you tonight, Lord. Please, Father, have mercy on me for the time it took me to deliver this message today. I pray in Jesus' name that, Jesus, you would come into each of our hearts, into this place, into our understanding, and you'd help us, Lord, to have context, to have reason, to have clarity, to have Holy Spirit filling, to have relationship with you, to have the proper response to what you want to do and what you're speaking into our lives. We ask that you would hear us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let's stand. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.